I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. It's in the what is known as the book of the Twelve. And so turn to your New Testament, hang a left. If you get to Obadiah, go right. If you get to Micah, go back. This short book of 48 verses, the book of Jonah, we are beginning today. I'm very excited about And for the reading of God's Word today, I just want to read the first three verses of the book as we get an introduction to it. And so, once again, let us give ear to the reading of God's Word, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Well, the the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of your Son, Jesus our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that Christ has done for us, as well as, heart of, well as hearts of gratitude for all that he has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the prophet Jonah lived in the 8th century BC in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam's long reign was characterized by a time of relative economic prosperity and military success as the king was able to retake land from their enemies to the north, restoring the border to Israel that had been under David's reign. And it was the prophet Jonah who predicted that he would do that. Now, we might think that this time of economic prosperity and military success came as a result of the fact that Jeroboam was a righteous king, the Lord rewarding him for his obedience to the law. But in fact, that was not the case. We read in 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was wicked just like all of the other kings in the northern kingdom, which came before and came after him. And so the fact that Jonah prophesied that he would have military success and that they would be able to restore their borders and overthrow, or at least uh, uh, keep at bay the enemies that had oppressed them, was in fact an act of God's grace. We read in 2 Kings chapter 14 that the Lord looked down upon his people and he saw the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And so while contemporary prophets like Amos or Hosea were crying out against Israel for their sin and rebellion and spiritual adultery against the Lord, and warning of impending judgment, the prophet Jonah was able to be a bearer of good news, delivering a ray of hope 
to a sinful and impenitent people as he, as he prophesied of the king's success in military battle. Now, we don't know if this ministry of the prophet Jonah uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel took place before, during, or after the events we read of in this well-known book. But one thing that we do notice uh, is a radically different reaction on Jonah's part when the Lord commands him to deliver a message, not to the northern kingdom of Israel, but to deliver a message to the Ninevites. Now, the city of Nineveh, uh, the ancient city of Nineveh, lies pretty close to the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. I'm sure most of us have heard about Mosul in the last several years. They were occupied by the so-called Islamic State. And it was in 2016 and in 2017 that a coalition of forces uh, engaged in what is known as the Battle of Mosul to overthrow ISIS rule. And the, the most difficult part of the battle took place in what is known as the Old City, where tragically thousand, you know, uh, parts of the city that were over a thousand years old were destroyed. That's precisely where the city of Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh, laid. And so the city of Nineveh uh, was actually part of the Assyrian Empire. And so we, you know, in Sunday school, we call them the Ninevites. But in reality, they were Assyrians who lived in the city of Nineveh. And the ancient Assyrians were known for their expansionist pol- uh, policy. They would raid other cities and try to take over land, as well as their brutal war tactics. You can read in some of the histories of the kings the type of uh, uh, brutal oppression and war tactics that they employed in order to strike fear in the hearts of their enemies. And Israel was one of those enemies. Historically, they were oppressors of Israel. They demanded tribute from their previous kings. Moreover, those contemporary prophets of Jonah, Amos and Hosea, were actually predicting that in the future, Israel would be defeated by the Assyrians. And that they would fall by their hands, which in fact happened in 722 BC. And so no Israelite living before, during, or after Jonah's day would have any positive connotations or thoughts for the Assyrians or for their great city, Nineveh. It'd be pretty similar today to the way that we might think about the so-called Islamic State. We would think those people are wicked, brutal, depraved, and they deserve to be overthrown. And that's precisely how Jonah felt about these people. And yet historical evidence suggests that the Assyrians were experiencing a period of decline during this time. Military and diplomatic losses followed by a severe famine and even a significant earthquake all contributed to the relative decline during this period of Jonah's day. And so when Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh, I'm assuming we all know the story, when he eventually gets to Nineveh and he predicts yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that was not that far-fetched. And it would have resonated with his audience as they had been suffering for a time. Of course, they would eventually revive and become major military powers and end up overthrowing Israel, as I said, in 722. But all of this 
provides the backdrop for the Lord's command to Jonah to go and cry out against that city of Nineveh for the evil acts that they had committed. The Lord says that their evil has come up before me, this figure of speech, to say that things have gotten so bad that the Lord must now act. This is similar language to what we read in Genesis 18, where the Lord says he's going to overthrow the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says their outcry has come up before me. The Lord must act because of their sinful behavior. And so he commissions Jonah to go and cry out before him. But anyone who is used to reading the Bible, and the Old Testament in particular, would get used to a particular way in which the Hebrew communicate or describes God's commissioning of a prophet. It typically says that the Lord goes to the prophet and says, arise, go, and do X. And that is followed by corresponding verbs that the, that the individual rose, went, and did what the Lord told him. This is just a way for us, the reader, to be able to know that the person obeyed the message of the Lord exactly as it was communicated. And yet, as we're used to that type of familiar pattern, arise, go, he arose and went, we see something different at the beginning of the book of Jonah. We see that the Lord tells him to arise and go to Nineveh, and yet look at Jonah's response. But Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. We see that he did precisely the opposite of what the Lord told him to do. Well, at this point, we need to ask why. Well, no doubt Jonah would relish in the opportunity to bring down the Assyrians. We even see him later in the book wanting to get a front row seat of the destruction of the city as he's sitting there and waiting for it to happen. You know, he's got his popcorn, he's ready to go to see fire and brimstone come down on the city. And no doubt he was also happy to hear of their imminent demise. But we see that Jonah is not at all willing to go and warn them about it. Because, you see, when God gives a warning, he's giving people a chance for them to repent. That's what you learn the first day of prophet school. You are, oh, oh, you are somebody who warns people. That, that, that's why you see this recurring motif amongst the prophets where they're called a watchman. Now, boys and girls, in the ancient world, you would live in a city where there'd be high city walls. And in the city walls built into it would be these watchtowers where people known as watchmen would go up and they would stay awake all night and watch for armies to come. And if they see the enemies coming towards the city, they would blow the trumpet. They would warn the people of imminent destruction. Well, that's exactly how the prophets saw themselves. That's how the Lord spoke of the prophets, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And even here, he wants Jonah to be a watchman for the city of Nineveh, to go and warn them so that they could repent. And so even the act of announcing impending judgment was in fact an act of God's grace. And that's why, precisely why, Jonah refused to go. Later on, he'll actually confess exactly why he did not want to go. He says in chapter 4, This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here we see a prophet who did not want to go on his mission precisely because he feared that he would be successful, that his message would get across. Can you imagine? It's interesting, you contrast that with, for example, the commissioning of the prophets Isaiah or Jeremiah, where right from the start, the Lord calls them to be prophets, but he says, guess what? No one's going to listen to you. I want you to warn my people, but they're going to have ears, but not hear. They're going to have eyes, but not see. They're not going to hear a message, but I want you to preach it nonetheless. Contrast that with Jonah who fears that his message would be successful, that his words of warning they would take heed to, and he knew the Lord's character, that if they repented, he was just too gracious. Now, how did Jonah know that? How did Jonah know this about God's character, that he was gracious and merciful, long-suffering, slow to anger, and, and abounding in steadfast love? Well, because he read his Old Testament. He knew going all the way back to the history of Israel, all the way back to the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 32, where the Lord makes his ways known to Moses, and he uses these precise words, the Lord, the Lord, full of mercy, full of grace, abounding in steadfast love, even as he, uh, uh, even as he forgave the Israelites from their sin of the golden calf. You see, Jonah would know about God's character not only from the ancient past, but even with the recent history. Knowing that the Lord was gracious to that northern kingdom of Israel, despite the fact that they were rebelling against him, that he gave them this time of peace and prosperity, even though they didn't deserve it. So we need to appreciate the rich irony in this book. You see, as far as Jonah was concerned, it's okay for God to be gracious to the Israelites, but he can't be gracious to their enemies. Now contrast that with the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jonah would say, amen, brother. And yet Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jonah resented the fact that God was gracious and kind and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, and yet he didn't have that image of God on his heart. He couldn't appreciate that. And so what did he do? Well, let's look at his actions as it's described there in verse 3, that he fled to Tarshish. Now, commentators are not agreed. No, No one really knows exactly where this place Tarshish is. Some people even suggest it's not a place, but it's a direction, that is seaward. Uh, there were probably several cities that lied to the west of Israel uh, that bore this name. But one thing that all commentators are agreed upon, 
that Tarshish was about as far away from the city of Nineveh as possible. It's in the complete opposite direction, about as far away as you can get. But in order to get there, he needs to get on a ship. And in order to get on a ship, he needs to go down to Joppa. Now, Joppa uh, was, and still is, a small port city on the Palestinian coast. It's known today by the name of Jaffa, not too far from Tel Aviv. And what's interesting is that Joppa at this point in Old Testament history was not technically part of Israel. And so even here, in even the port city that Jonah chooses, he could have chosen others, but even the port city that he chooses to flee from is one where he likely would not have encountered any fellow Israelites. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He pays the fare, which probably would have been pretty pricey since this would have been a several-month journey. And he goes down into the belly of the ship. You'll notice there as it's describing Jonah's actions, we see that he goes down to Joppa, describing the literal descent it would take uh, to go from uh, the northern kingdom of Israel down to that port city. But not only, he doesn't stop there. Once he gets to Joppa, he goes down into the ship. It's described twice here to, to show and to highlight this, this idea that his literal descent down to Joppa and down into the ship mirrors his spiritual descent as he goes away from the presence of the Lord. As he leaves the land of promise, as he leaves the place where God has made his name known, and he goes out to sea away from the presence of the Lord, this is Jonah's attempt to get as far away, not only from the mission that the Lord called him to do, but also the God who called him on this mission. But as Jonah sets out into the deep blue sea, you had to know, and he had to know, that it was all in vain. Because later on, he actually will tell his fellow shipmates that he serves the Lord, Yahweh, who is the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He had to know that there was really no getting away from the presence of the Lord. Although he left the land of promise, the Lord is everywhere. Even as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Well, Jonah knew that all too well, and he was going to be reminded of that later on in the chapter. As we reflect upon God's commissioning of the prophet Jonah and his negative response, I think we also need to appreciate the development in redemptive history as we compare this Old Testament prophet with what we find in the New Testament. And one of the amazing developments of God's revelation to his people takes place in this very city of Joppa that Jonah fled to to get away. For centuries later, in this very same small port town of Joppa, the son of a man named Jonah received a vision instructing him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles to a Roman centurion 
no less, to one of the occupiers of the Jewish people. Uh, the, the, Roman, the Jews were taught to hate the Romans from childhood. And yet this Jewish man, who went by the name of Simon Bar-Jonah, but who had the nickname Peter, received a vision. And he learned eventually from this vision of the Lord. And he confessed later, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is what he came to realize. But it was a hard lesson for Peter to learn. And it was a hard lesson for the predominantly Jewish uh, uh, church in the early, in, in, in the early decades of, of the, after the resurrection of Christ. And this was after the Great Commission. This was after the time when Jesus took his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There, it's pretty clear that they're supposed to go not just to the Assyrians, but to all nations and preach the gospel. And yet Peter and the early church needs a gentle nudging by the Holy Spirit needs a very clear affirmation on the part of the Lord that, yes, you can go preach to these Gentiles. You can preach to these Romans, even though they're occupying your land, even though they were historically your enemies, you need to preach the gospel to them. And so we shouldn't be so harsh with Jonah right off the bat. We shouldn't judge an Old Testament prophet with New Testament standards. And yet... It was not as if the Israelites of old were to be completely isolated and have no outward-looking missional stance towards the nations around them. Going all the way back to the very beginning uh, of the promise that God gave to Abraham, one of the promises he gave to him is that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see, even at the beginning of God's plan for Abraham and his people, that there would be a universal blessing coming upon the nations. And as they were formed as a nation and given the law, they were given this task, this commission to serve as a light for the nations by keeping the law of God. Moses describes this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's speaking of the commandments of the Lord. He tells the the second generation of Israelites who are about to enter into the land, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of these statutes, will say, surely this this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this that I set before you today? You see, Israel, by keeping the law of God, would serve as a light to the nations. And so as the surrounding nations would look upon Israel keeping the law of God and experiencing the blessings which would come upon them as a result of their obedience, they would say, what great and wise nation this is. Look at this God that is so close to them, dwelling in their midst. Look at the abundant prosperity that they are experiencing. 
They were to serve a positive example. And that positive example should serve as, as a way to draw people in from the surrounding nations. So that by the time Solomon builds his temple, during his prayer of dedication, he envisions the foreigner who would come as a result of that positive example. He says in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that this uh, that that this house that I have built is called by your name. Well that same sentiment was echoed and expressed even in the psalm we sang today Psalm 67 God bless us so that all nations may hear your name and declare your praise. This was Israel's task as a nation. And although it was rare for an Old Testament prophet to travel to a foreign nation, like Jonah was supposed to do to the Ninevites, it was in keeping with God's universal reign and eventual plan to unite all peoples in his son. But by Jonah's day, the vast majority of the Israelites had utterly failed in this divine mission. They did not keep God's law. They did not solely worship the Lord their God, but they went after false idols and became no different than the surrounding nations. And so I think we ought to see here, in Jonah's personal rebellion against this mission to serve as a light to the nations, we ought to see that as symbolic of a national rebellion on the part of the people of God as a whole, their utter and complete failure to serve as a light. And yet, if there's any message of the prophet Jonah, of the book of Jonah, is that despite the failures of God's people, and despite the failures of his individual prophets, God remains sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes of grace and salvation. He is in control, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week in the rest of chapter 1, and really in the rest of the entire book. And so how ought we to apply this passage to our lives? These first uh, three verses of the book of Jonah. You see, too often in, in preaching on the book of Jonah, application is made directly from Jonah to us. And the main point is this. Don't be like Jonah. Don't be hypocritical. Don't be racist. Don't disobey God's will for your life. And those are all true things. Jonah is not a perfect moral exemplar. But I think if we go straight from Jonah to us, we miss something of the richness of God's grace for us as it has been revealed in the person and work of his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I think the key to applying this passage to our lives is to see Jonah as a symbol of his nation. To see Jonah's rebellion and refusal to obey the voice of the Lord as indicative of all of the Israelites' refusal 
to do that and to serve as a light to the nations. And as we see this one man's life symbolizing the nation as a whole, it highlights for us the need of a greater than Jonah, of a true Israel who would come and serve as a, as, as a faithful light unto the nations. And of course, that was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. As he spoke to his contemporaries, to the religious leaders of his day, who were demanding of him a sign from heaven, he says, no sign shall be given to this adulterous and sinful generation, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he speaks, goes on to say that a greater than Jonah is in your midst. He goes on to show how he fulfills precisely what Jonah refused to do. How he did what Israel, the spiritual adulterous people, was unable to do. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ willingly took on the form of a servant. He did not go to his friends, but he went to his enemies and laid down his life for us, and for our salvation. And so as we begin this book of Jonah, may we not only see the failures of this one man, this stubborn prophet, but may we see in it the even greater than Jonah and the perfect obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you uh, laid down your life for us who were all by nature children of wrath, enemies of you and of God, so that you might reconcile us to God and reconcile us to each other. I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who assures us of salvation and continues to conform us more and more into your image. So be pleased, O Lord, to fill us with your grace so that we might live lives of gratitude for all that you have done and may our lives Serve as a light and witness to those around us. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.